Is it that we assume that if somebody is suffering or in the midst of war or famine, uh, destruction, that therefore we have to portray them simply as a victim? Or can we find their human dignity in the midst of this? And it's a tension every photographer has to deal with. That was Professor Kiku Adato, a scholar in residence at Harvard's Mahindra Humanities Center and a lecturer on social studies. I've had the great privilege of taking her seminar this semester on the interplay of art, political culture, and civic life, which has been hands down the most fascinating class I've taken at Harvard. In today's episode, we discuss her book, Picture Perfect, Life in the Age of the Photo Op. It's a fascinating book about the use and abuse of images in photography, television, movies, and on the internet. We also discuss photojournalism and the power of the camera to document war. We talk about the ethical relationship between photographer and subject. And finally, in this episode, we discuss another art form, rhetoric. We talk about what good rhetoric and storytelling look like in political speeches, in popular music, and in Professor Adato's children's book, Baba Yan and the Magic Star. I had a great time sitting down with my professor today, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This is Ad Hoc, and I'm your host, Matthew. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back, Professor Adato. It's such a privilege to have you with me today to continue some of the discussions we've been having in class this year. So thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Matthew. Um, so we will cover a lot of subjects, but before any of that, I was hoping just to kick us off, if you could give listeners a sense of your background, both in terms of your career trajectory, but also in terms of when and how you became so attuned to the role of art in political culture and civic life, and when you started to take this stuff seriously. I think it all began when I was an undergraduate. I was very interested in literature and theater and film and ended up making my own um, concentration, my own major, combining all three, and I made a film, a dance film, for my thesis project, as well as writing a really long paper on Shakespeare, who I was crazy about as an undergraduate. And then I went to film school uh, to pursue my interest in film, particularly documentary film. And from this began my deep interest in the visual culture. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I was a person really tuned into popular culture. As I've said to you in class, I was mostly looking at European films, Latin American films, art films, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until I wrote Picture Perfect that I actually looked deeply at American popular films. And what I was interested in was in light of the crisis of legitimacy that came about after the Vietnam War and Watergate, mm -hmm. how did films portray the relationship between the individual and institutions? Um, how did they portray protesters? How did they portray reform movements? And so began my journey into understanding popular culture. Got it. And so Picture Perfect is, much of it is about photography. Were you ever a photographer or you just that became a particular expression of popular culture that you became interested in for whatever reason. I began as a filmmaker, right. not a photographer. But it was in film school that someone put a 
uh, Leica M3, an old Leica, which I still have, a mm -hmm. camera in my hands, and I began taking photographs. So I would say that my visual interest expanded to photography. Okay. Got it. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about photography. And in particular, I want to start with the role of the political photo op, as you explain it in Picture Perfect. So you talk about lots of photo ops in the book. Um, some of my favorites are Reagan posing as an American cowboy or John Kerry going goose hunting ahead of the 2004 election to appeal to rural voters. Um, there are plenty of other examples like Paul Ryan washing dishes at a soup kitchen. Or a more contemporary example of an accidental photo op, we might call it, is the Trump campaign raising millions of dollars off of his Georgia mugshot. And, you know, turning that into a kind of photo op, putting it on t-shirts, posters, bumper stickers, and making a killing off of it. Uh, my question for you is, why are these photo ops so effective politically? Or at least, why do campaigns seem to think that they're effective? And particularly, how can they be effective when it's painfully obvious, maybe with the exception of the Trump um, mugshot, that these images are posed, fabricated, in some, case, in some cases even kind of doctored in a way? Why, why do they still have a hold on viewers if we're super attuned to the fact that they're kind of fake or they're kind of fabricated? I think that the idea of the photo op goes back way before the invention of the camera in the sense of, of course, it wasn't photography, but politicians, rulers, leaders, kings, monarchs, right. um, used spectacle, used theater in order to legitimate their power. Ceremonies, theater, parades, in which the public becomes attuned to a spectacle a performance that allows the rulers to gain legitimacy through their rule. And so an inheritor of that is the photo op. And you go back to Machiavelli, who, who, who said, uh, everyone can see who you appear to be. Few people know who you really are. And the idea of appear to be, of appearance, which was also a theme in Shakespeare, I am not what I seem, right. is developed in, in an interesting way in the photograph, which in its origin, the aspiration of the photograph was to pursue the truth, to document reality, to portray the spirit of fact, the real character or soul of a person in a portrait, um, document uh, events, for the public, but it became quickly clear at its earliest stage in an invention that the photograph could also deceive, it could manipulate, it could fake. And so as you're pointing out, the, the photo op partakes of both. When you mention the successful photo ops of Reagan with a cowboy hat riding a horse, and when he died, that was the photograph that went in all the major magazines. Um, partaking of the maverick hero of American movies and stories, or the failed photo op of Carrie Goose Hunting, right. or um, Dukakis in a Tank, or countless others, speak to the fact that, on the one hand, we believe what we see, and so when even though something could be constructed as a photo op, it has this visual power. At the same time, we live in an age when we are skeptical, critical of 
obviously photo ops, as you mentioned. We know they're constructed. Right. And so there's a battleground, which continues from the invention of the photo op, um, which began really in the 60s, the first time it was in the late 60s in the 1968 campaign, uh, in which the word photo op was first used. It was used by a reporter making fun of an event um, in 1968 of Jackie Gleason and Nixon playing on a golf course. For Jackie Gleason may be a very old-fashioned name. He was a comedian and a TV personality okay. in his time. And the reporter described it as a photo op. And he said, when I used that word, I thought that it would discredit photo ops forevermore. Right that I was exposing the contrivance, as you pointed out, Matthew, of this event. But actually, it became a term of art. We don't really use the word photo op critically. We even use it when we're taking our family pictures. How about a photo op? Right. Um, so we're living in a, a culture that's made its peace in one way with the photo op. At the same time, is skeptical of what the camera uh, shows us and what the politicians are portraying. So there's a battleground, which I documented in my book, Picture Perfect, between for control of the image, the constructors of the photo op and sometimes the deconstructors of the photo right. op. Is there maybe a shift among photo ops to make them appear more, I guess, candid? I think you pointed out in the book that the best pose is to appear unposed. And so that Hillary Clinton's website is a good example of that, where she kind of showed a, what appeared as a digital family album that you can just sift through from childhood to adulthood. And the pictures varied from flattering to not so flattering and just kind of like what you would typically find in a, in a family album. So are we, are we seeing that kind of shift from the more, you know, I'm going to portray myself as a maverick hero or a cowboy to I'm going to portray myself as, a, as an everyday kind of person? Other examples include um, Boris Johnson, I think, hanging from a zipline um, mm -hmm. or Justin Trudeau paddling a canoe. You know, still things that are obviously like, okay, you got up there, you got your mm -hmm. campaign out, and you took a photo of yourself, but a little bit less, um, you know, I'm Putin posing shirtless, or I'm, you know, John Kerry going goose hunting. I think that there's really a combination of techniques with social media, um, the idea of the posed informality, that you're actually, mm. you're seeing me as I really am, but that it, itself is constructed as a photo op. And then we have the tendency, which we see in our own photography and, in, of course, long-standing and fashion photography of the enhanced photo op, right. that it is a hyper-real, better-than-real picture um, of a fashion model or of ourselves. So we have the informal one, we have the enhanced, manipulated photo op, and I think that gets to a very deep political problem that we're facing now in the Israel-Gaza, Israel-Hamas war, which is the replication of images from other wars, particularly Syria. And, and video other, games, too, yes, I might exactly. add. Yeah. And so what happens is that we see images that are actually not documenting the war before us. So the, there's uh, an enormous potential to manipulate images and make them seem as real. But I don't think that in the face of that manipulation, we should become cynical or perpetually uh, disenchanted with the power of, of the image, the power of the photograph. But we need to 
recall and um, also still promote the idea of the photograph, the video, as a way of bringing us a certain form of witnessing that is always incomplete. The photo, the video is only an opening to a story we have to learn more about. It isn't the complete story. And I think that that's one of the dilemmas of the way we look at pictures. We make a lot of assumptions and we are guided by how we look at the picture, by the caption, by the words next to it, by the context of the picture. The pictures, photos are always incomplete. Right. So you've jumped the gun because we are going to get to misinformation and how we regain trust in the photograph and, and balance kind of the twin dangers of knowing that photographs are often doctored and misleading and yet not wanting to reflexively label everything we see as misinformation. So we'll get there. But before that, I want to turn briefly to the relationship between photographer and subject and discuss what, if anything, the photographer owes to their subject and what that relationship looks like in practice, what it should look like. Um, I just want to put a couple of things on the table as background. First is the issue of consent and kind of balancing the rights of the subject with the potential public good served by an image, which can be complicated for a variety of reasons, including in the case of photographing youth who are, you know, maybe too young to understand the consequences of a photo being out there. Um, an example that comes to mind for me is of Napalm Girl, Fanti Kim Fook, who of course was the nine-year-old girl running naked down a road, down the road, burned by the napalm attack in the Vietnam War. And then there's also the question of not just consent, but of the content of how a photographer should portray suffering. And one example that we covered in class that has stuck with me quite a bit since is uh, the case of Sebastio Salgado, who is the famous Brazilian photographer who's criticized essentially of depicting suffering with too much beauty, right? Of, of taking something inherently ugly, like suffering or economic destitution, and turning it into a sort of aesthetic masterpiece. I'm curious what you make both of that, you know, narrow criticism of, is it wrong to aestheticize suffering? Do photographers do that frequently? Should they do that? And, and more broadly, I guess the question of, what the photographer owes to their subject. I think these are wonderful and deep questions you pose, Matthew. In certain circumstances, uh, the consent of the subject is very central. We think about just the portraits uh, that we take, that in with the invention of the daguerreotype, the right. camera speed was very slow, so there had to be cooperation between the subject of the photograph and the photographer. Right. With the invention at the turn of the century with the Kodak camera and since very small cameras that can be easily concealed, we all have uh, smartphone cameras, it then becomes possible for people to take photographs without the consent of the subject. Mm -hmm. There isn't the, the long-term... Uh, relationship in the sense of just to get the image. And so that that brings up actually deep ethical questions about the treatment of the stranger. Because when we think about it, the photograph gives us the ability to photograph the stranger without their consent. And so I think you're very the the issue of consent is important, but there and if you can 
And I know when I would do documentary photography, like on the streets of New York and other (laughs) examples, I would always collaborate with the person being photographed. I would make them aware that I was there. I might be very patient and wait and they forget that I'm taking a whole bunch of photographs. But I didn't believe in, in the idea that the world is sort of mine and mm-hmm. all these strangers I can, uh, in some sense, possess through my images. And I think that that's an issue about modern life and our increasing sense that we live in a mass society, a big society, when we don't, we're not in close contact with people. And the invention of the photograph, which gives us the power, in a sense, as you were raising earlier, to both uh, capture a certain truth and also manipulate. Mm-hmm. But it gives us the power to treat someone like an object, which is a, a moral dilemma that's, uh, that crops into, whether it's fashion f- photography or documentary photography. So women have long criticized fashion photography mm-hmm. for objectifying women or speaking about the male gaze or the particular poses women have to uh, take in fashion photographs, but that goes right down through photography. So consent is one issue, which can come while the photographs are being taken, but in the case, as you mentioned, in more photography of Kim Fook, uh, the girl captured running away from a napalm attack from the South Vietnamese, and the photographer, Nick Oot, takes this photograph. Um, and it's a very alarming photograph. It created a lot of controversy at the time because it was a child who was naked, which was, there was there were rules against doing that, but they were overridden for the sake of documenting this. But afterwards, uh, Nick Oot formed a deep relationship. So the consent didn't come before the photograph, and photographers can't, in in moments of war, documenting genocide, all kinds of conflict, they can't. You can't be rushing up to the subject for consent. But oftentimes, and this is very true, a photo documenters, photojournalists, is that afterwards they do develop a relationship with the subject, whether it's to help them get treatment for their wounds or rescue them from a particular situation. So there's levels of consent and opportunities for consent that we often ignore, but I think that photojournalists, oftentimes more than print reporters, tend try to develop a relationship with their subjects. Right. Even though they are sadly uh, in this shoot the messenger mentality, and this gets to your question about Salgado, they're on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, because if you photograph suffering and war, if you go to photograph the most cruel things that could happen in the world, how are you supposed to photograph that? That's a moral dilemma all in itself. And I think that a photographer like Salgado and many others who do, Salgado, by the way, does develop a long-term relationship mm-hmm. with his uh, subjects. He's a Marxist. He often has done great documentary photography of, of workers, and he lives with them and works with them. The aesthetic criticism that you're raising, it can a photograph of suffering be too beautiful? And the question, it's possible that that could be the case. I don't think it's a fair criticism of Salgado, mm-hmm. because I think that his ambition is to give the subject dignity. And is it that we assume that if somebody is suffering or in the midst of war or famine, uh, destruction, 
that therefore we have to portray them simply as a victim? Or can we find their human dignity in the midst of this? And it's a tension every photographer has to deal with. Right, you either depict suffering and are accused of depicting your subject in a degrading way, or you make your photo too beautiful. It's kind of an inescapable tension there. obviously because of the wars going on in Israel, Gaza, and Russia, Ukraine. My hunch is that it seems as though these images that are coming out, and as images are becoming more ubiquitous, given social media, the internet, and also more prone to misinformation, given, um, I mean, on the one hand, given AI, but also, and you know, the potential for deep fakes and, and things like that, but also just given our state of polarization and our likelihood of distrusting and denying things that we don't like. Is it the case that images are losing the power they once held in exposing the horrors of war or other tragic circumstances and generating sympathy? Is that kind of because, you know, countless people pointed to the way in which and the power of, of the photo to expose things we otherwise simply had no interaction with, you know, the war in Vietnam or suffering all the way across the world which maybe we read about, but we never would have appreciated the moral gravity of, perhaps, without visceral images that provoke a very human reaction. Is that power gone now, or is it at least heavily undermined by the current landscape uh, in which photography exists with social media and polarization? I know it's a common criticism, a common worry. Some people speak of compassion fatigue. There's so many images of of suffering uh, in the world. And I think that that is a misguided criticism because when was there a period of a golden era in which we had enormous uh, compassion and interest and involvement? So again, it's the photograph is too much blame for uh, problems that lie outside the photograph. I think that when we th consider examples of the power of photographs in the case of the Iraq war, mm -hmm. the photographs of the Abu Ghraib prison, which were not official photographs, which were just taken by the prison guards and shared among themselves and discovered accidentally by a sergeant who just, who, his own old-fashioned photos had melted in the sun and he wanted to have a digital file to have some memories of his time fighting in Iraq borrowed a digital file and then is shocked to see these images shared by prison guards, though he was not a person that he said would snitch on a fellow soldier. He felt compelled to turn them in. And that created a, a, a huge furor. It really exposed the horrible practices uh, by the Americans at Abu Ghraib prison, which human rights activists have been speaking about for some time. Mm -hmm. And it's an example which we see over and over again of a photograph revealing a particular truth. At the same time, as you mentioned, they can be quite deceptive. Also from the Iraq War, there was a famous photograph of the statue of Saddam Hussein coming down. And what happened was all the media, in terms of framing a photograph, and the frame, of course, is so important, 
made it look like this was the Berlin Wall falling when it wasn't. There were, mm -hmm. The square was basically empty. American equipment was helping taking down the statue. So there are many, many instances, in, even in this uh, unfolding conflict, as we see every day in the paper, one thing that makes people aware of the devastating costs of the Ukraine war and now this war in, um, with Israel and Hamas, Israel-Gaza war, is the just sheer loss of human life and the damage that's being done, which has evoked world engagement. It's not a secret what's going on. So I think that the alternative would be not to see, yeah. not to have photographs. I don't think that's an alternative we'd, we'd select. But as you pointed out earlier, Matthew, the one has to be careful about what one sees. Because in a polarized conflict, certain images are traded at, uh, even if they're uh, not documentary images. Um, so again, we turn more to our polarized discourse. We turn more towards trying to understand what is at stake in a particular conflict than stopping and obsessing about the photograph. I think it's like a, a bit of a postmodern mm -hmm. consciousness. Yes, right. it's better that we are skeptics of the photograph and this, that we don't simply, like our 19th century forebears, believe what we see. Right. But on the other hand, we have to see the photograph as part of the information and analysis and viewpoints that we get along with words. So when, even though I wrote about visual images in Picture Perfect, I believe in the power of words, that the words frame the photo and also are integral to our public di dialogue right. about any issue we face. I want to get your opinion on a part of a book that we read from Bryant Garston, who, who wrote a book called Saving Persuasion, A Defense of Rhetoric and Judgment. And his argument to fill people in is that, you know, persuasive rhetoric in politics is not that bad. He's kind of defending it against the common accusation that rhetoric is manipulative, that, involve, that it involves clever politicians using wordplay or other strategic tactics to sway their audiences. And Garson argues instead, and, and I'll quote here, a politics of persuasion in which people try to change one another's minds by appealing not only to reason, but also to passions and sometimes even prejudices is a mode of politics that is worth defending. And this struck a chord with me as a former debater trained in the very unrealistic science of, you know, persuading a hyper-rational, emotionless, neutral adjudicator, which of course doesn't exist in the real world. Um, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on Garson's take here. And do you agree that this kind of pejorative label of rhetoric um, is, is misguided somehow? Does it miss something? I think, I know I do I agree with Garston um, in terms of the importance of emotion, passion, feeling, and as he says, which is so essential, and he draws from Aristotle, he draws from the Greeks informing this view of of modern rhetoric is to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. And what that means, I think, is in, in our impoverished political discourse, our fractured yeah. political discourse, highly polarized, is to get back to some essential things we discussed related to the photograph 
and that is, one is the dignity of the person you're facing. They may have different views than you, but that you are ready to listen to them express their views, and that you realize that feeling and sentiment, religious beliefs, all kinds of beliefs shape people's perspectives, beliefs that are not part of hyper-rational, as you put it, Matthew, debate discourse. Right. And one of the problems, I think, of the Democratic Party is that in its neoliberal turn, mm -hmm. um, in its support of professional elites, and the, also the turn um, to supporting forces on Wall Street and globally globalization, deregulation, that the rhetoric has become hollowed out, mm -hmm. too hollowed out by the Democrats. There was a, a, a brief moment when it seemed that when Obama ran for the presidency and when Obama spoke, that he captured, recaptured, really, elements of rhetoric that were rooted in the church, religious belief, that it was animated by, uh, uh, both in tone and the way he delivered it, and also in his famous eulogy for Reverend uh, mm -hmm. Piketty, to speak in a way that reached people, and even when he sang a little bit of um, Amazing Grace. Yeah. People still debate what that interpreting that particular moment, but the deeper point I want to make is that Garston is right that the rhetoric has to be richer and it also has to address, and this has nothing to do, it has something to do with passion, but it also has to do with focusing on the core issues of reading the sentiments of the public. If Trump has been so popular with Republicans, and if the anger he has fueled has been so great, and the resentment and the sense of humiliation and anger towards elites, mm -hmm. that's something that Democrats, liberals, and progressives have to pay attention to. And that's why feeling and emotion are so important in rhetoric, not simply to dismiss it that you disagree with it, but to ask yourself, what is fueling this anger and how can we address the sources of that anger in a more constructive fashion. So it's very important, I think, when Garston um, talks about rhetoric not being mere words, but also essential to our public discourse, making an argument, trying to persuade, asking people to exercise judgment, and cultivating a quality which we're sorely lacking, which is the art of listening, mm -hmm. just to listen to your opponents. Right. I think his point invites a kind of reimagination of what good rhetoric looks like. Um, I'm simultaneously taking Professor Sandel's class, and he's spoken a lot about how the sort of meritocratic turn of both left and right, but, but among center-left and center-right politics have alienated people and kind of turned them away and fueled this populist backlash that we've witnessed in this country. So for example, Obama, who, you know, traditionally, I think his 2004 DNC speech was one of the greatest speeches I've ever heard. And I, I joked to my friends that it's the, my American friends, that it's the only thing that could have made me close to understanding American patriotism. But as Professor Sandel pointed out, there's sort of a, a an implicit insult in the rhetoric of the American dream, the rhetoric of, you know, climbing the socioeconomic ladder that anyone can make it if they try 
which is that it's an insult to those who fall at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, of those without a college degree. And in some ways, you know, we think of Trump as a not so good orator, and we think of Obama as an excellent, or some people think of him as an excellent orator. But in some sense, this idea that Garston raises of meeting people where they are might force us to reconsider that a little bit and to recognize that Donald Trump, you know, with his small words and his um, funny demeanor, actually did tap into a sense that people were really feeling. And, you know, people obviously have different political views on whether that's whether he was good or bad. But understanding the appeal of that rhetoric, the danger and, and what that can do, I think is very important. And it makes us realize that excellent oration and, and compelling rhetoric maybe needs to be defined a little bit more broadly. And I think to Garson's point, with more attention to how the audience is actually receiving those messages. Yes, but and also is the case um, to begin to understand what are the core issues facing the American public and speak to those issues. Yeah. And one of them is the dignity of work. Mm-hmm. As you pointed out, if the meritocratic climb for a long time, for the last few decades, has meant going to college and rising that way, but that devalues a whole arena of work which is valuable in this mm-hmm. society, all the professional traits. Um, and so the left-behind feeling that if you, you make it, as you said, you can make it if you try, that was a, Obama's kind of element, a weak, I would say a weak element mm-hmm. of the rhetoric because it does partake, as you said, of the meritocratic ethos, which is rewarding the winners and the implicit thing that if you didn't, make it, then you're a loser. Right. And as you know, in Trump's rhetoric, he talks a lot about winners and losers. Mm-hmm. So the Democratic Party needs to rethink like the core issues that speak to the concerns and anxieties of the American public. And I think the dignity of work is one which crosses through and gets out of the problem of the Democratic Party being associated with the professional coastal elites. And not speaking to the average American or the working American and the needs that they and the concerns that they have. Right. So that makes me think, and it's a good transition to speaking about political rhetoric in music, which I want to get your thoughts on briefly. Um, This idea of out of touch elites and politicians found expression in um, Oliver Anthony's Rich Men North of Richmond song, (laughs) which made headwaves on, um, you know, the RNC, the GOP debates, and social media more broadly. Um, Can you kind of talk us through if you have any thoughts on how political rhetoric might seep into popular music and like what kind of influence that has on us, what that says about our popular culture and our our political landscape? I think that music is very essential and um, a deep way of moving people. And we think about earlier forms of that in our own history, um, uh, the singing of Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday, a song against lynching. Mm -hmm. And you listen to that, and and the music has what uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, the famous Spanish poet, referred to as duende. It's this deeper, music is able to convey and tap into the deepest emotions, that fine line between joy and suffering, life and death, and 
So you hear a song in um, W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass talk about the sorrow songs of enslaved people where their masters thought that these were maybe happy songs they're singing when actually they were expressions, again, of this element of duende, of, of, kind of a deep suffering, but also a, a sense of hope, a sense of transcendence, a sense of of seeing that maybe you can overcome, and of course, even the simple song, We Shall Overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so music it has, when we look at it, it's been essential to protest movements, to labor movements, civil rights movements, the abolitionist movement. Um, also, music has this more troubling side. There isn't a war that goes by uh, or the training for war from ancient times to the present in which music doesn't play a part. Sometimes just soldiers singing a song to give them courage, sometimes the most fundamental element in the ancient world of the percussive drumbeat mm-hmm. or horns uh, terrorizing the enemy. You're just, they're coming. And so, again, when we, th- we think too hyper-rationally about our world, uh, we forget that these the element of music, as you've raised, is a core element, and it comes into the persuasive rhetorical field, like uh, Richmond, uh, north of Richmond, where you see a clear articulation of the anger with elites. And um, Oliver Anthony, after he saw that uh, the Republicans used this uh, uh, clip of his song, uh, to introduce the first uh, uh, debate, mm-hmm. primary debate, um, is or contenders debate was that I met you too. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> so it's the song. If one looks at all the lyrics, there could be some problematic elements to the song, but in terms of reading the culture, again, it it substantiates your point about in some ways the Democratic Party going more into a professional elitist direction and mouthing the meritocratic ethic has lost touch with this, we could consider a very legitimate anger of people left behind and also an anger that their work and their contribution is not valued. And I think one of the problems with the meritocratic ethic is that we are too in our society defined by work as if the constriction Mm -hmm. of who we are comes down to what we do. And Hannah Arendt in The Human Condition makes a distinction between being considered a what and being considered a who, like an agent with dignity. And a what is your resume. That's your what. Mm -hmm. And though we're, sadly, in the environment we live in, in Harvard, um, (laughs) way too obsessed with the what and cultivating that resume, whereas the who is is a a deeper question, a deeper quest, a deeper sense of dignity that we accord um, each other and that we accord the the stranger, the person we don't know. And so I think that that's, that's essential in forming a, a, a democratic platform, the dignity of work and rethinking, as you said, the, a, a, a platform, um, a set of a vision that moves the Democratic Party away from both um, the professional elitist orientation and also, I must say, 
too much, although much has been gained by focusing on identity politics, mm-hmm. elements with the Democratic Party is also lost because we can see, again, reading the country, that if the Republicans make so much of certain aspects of this, to not give up supporting the dignity of everyone and of supporting rights, but also to recognize that the agenda has to be, or the the appeal has to be broadened. And I think that explains why rich men north of Richmond kind of oddly became like a Republican anthem, which is kind of weird because the song is just railing against like out of touch rich people and elites, which isn't necessarily a Republican cause per se. I mean, that's the side of the spectrum that's more pro tax cuts and, and things of that nature. But what was the, the, the central feature of the song was more the anti-elite sentiment that it expressed, which nowadays in the political landscape of the Trump Republican Party and the direction it's going in is associated with that kind of populist backlash stemming maybe from a denial of the dignity of work and, and respect for, for everyone. Last thing I want to pick your brain on is the Baba Yan project. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of continuing with this theme of rhetoric and storytelling and, and the power of words. So that's an international storytelling and civic education initiative that you've um, started with Professor Sandel. I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about that and, and what the goal is, what the vision is, and what problem in society you think that's responding to? The problem that it's responding to is the one you've spoken about earlier, which is a highly polarized, uh, fractious public discourse. And one way to address the problem is to start with children when they're young Mm -hmm. and be able to model um, ethical reasoning, Socratic dialogue, to ignite children's artistic and moral imagination. So this project is based on a children's story uh, that I wrote and an accompanying guide for teachers and families. And the the story and the guide um, focus on children as um, philosophers to say Mm -hmm. that a child, and we know that from all the children we know in our lives, and even just remembering being a kid, you think about really big questions And so while the book is a springboard, it's a story of a monster, uh, a bully uh, uh, who terrorizes the neighborhood and transforms um, in kind of a Sandelian vision of slowly learning what friendship is and building a community and that the self is not simply created uh, whole cloth, but defined and and shaped by all the constitutive ties of your life, of family, neighborhood, friends, community, nation. So this, we have developed this project, and it's been in China, India, Latin America, Spain, um, South Korea, Taiwan, and spreading to other parts of the world, in order to give children this opportunity and the way it addresses the fractious dialogue, it's exploring values mm-hmm. without being a purveyor of a particular kind of value. So children ask like big questions about treatment of the stranger or the difference between being lonely and alone, all kinds of what we would call as adults existential questions. Right. 
and are able to reflect on them, but in an imaginative universe in which they can turn back to the real world. And some of the projects, two of the projects connected to it is one for children to be story seekers after they read the story and discuss it and debate these big issues to go home as story seekers and ask their family, friends, neighbors for a story that they'll make into a book, that they'll write an oral story Mm -hmm. from their oral story tradition and to uh, then write that story up and illustrate it to honor the traditions, the local traditions, and also to then turn back to the real world and being become a little bit of journalists and reflect on whatever the school program or whatever issue at that community in, in that community to write a third story. So to continue and debate the story of Babylon, to be story seekers, and to become journalists. Yeah. And to see the power of the dialogue and also the power of storytelling, which we've also lost sight of in our culture. It's so important when we're children and then we lose touch with it. Right. I, I think it's I think it's brilliant. I think we need more ethical storytelling detached from, you know, partisan identities and disagreement. Mm-hmm. And what, what better time to start when it, than when a child is, you know, six, seven years old. I wish I was five to 12 years old right now in the, in the age range of, of your target audience, but I do intend on checking it out for myself and recommending it to some younger cousins of mine. But I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Professor Adato, this has been a fascinating discussion and a really great opportunity for me to pick your brain on some of the topics we've been covering this semester. So thank you so very much. Thank you, Matthew. This was Ad Hoc. Thank you for listening. Thank you.